This essay is from Cinema Year Zero. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash year zero cinema. Empire in Decline, the Paddingtonization of British Cinema 2012 to 2020 by Ben Flanagan. January 2021, not the easiest time to continue one's love affair with the city of London. As the city remains the national epicentre of the Covid pandemic, it exists in a limbo state. Mostly closed, there are enough chain supermarkets and takeaway restaurants to attract movement across the streets. Trains and buses still operate because things are still to be done. There are still things to see. From my vantage point in South London, I can visit scenes from Blow Up, Babylon and Legally Blonde within a half-hour walk. The novelty doesn't get old. But then, novelty is what the city is all about. From the popularity of the cartoonishly designed cans of beer, to the mayor who promised a garden bridge. Whatever happened to him? The vastness of London is offset by both consumer and company with the aid of modern trends to smooth our sad existences and our brains. In Paddington 2, the Peruvian immigrant bear celebrates the city by purchasing a book of London's landmarks, a gift to convince his aunt to come and visit. Watch the film, though, and you won't feel a city so much as the softened collection of streets and signifiers like bearskin hats. Paddington is a kid's film. You might expect the edges to be rounded, but it almost meets London in the middle. British culture has been on a trajectory of corporate blandness for over a decade. The decline of the British high street has the masses excited at the prospect of a Wagamama's opening next door. As with everything in the UK, the centre of this is London, a gentrification project epitomised by the London 2012 Olympics. In an effort to regenerate the industrial wastelands of London's East End, and to present the nation as welcoming following a history of murderous colonialism, particularly fresh at the time was the war in Iraq, somewhere in the region of £93 billion was spent on a two-week sporting event that celebrated our cuddliness. Did this figure include the eviction of Occupy London from various Paddington-visited landmarks just months before the Games began? This is a period remembered fondly as the peak of British multiculturalism, but from my vantage point in an Essex town on just the wrong side of the M25, the common re- refrain was, keep out of London for a month, you don't want to get blown up. The Games were a huge success, and popular culture followed its smiling blandness. In a search for average venue, so-called bastions of taste like The Guardian and NME full-throatedly embraced optimism as an ethos, opening the doors for the likes of Ed Sheeran to be seen as a legitimate rock star by the British public, eventually crowned our king of pop with a Glastonbury headline slot. This era presented a switch where not only were PR and marketing terms the driver of cultural narratives and writers of our headlines, but dissent was quashed. You must like Adele, you must watch Bake Off, you must read One Day. This era seeing the effective death of the novel as a cultural force while book Instagrams blew up and book sales finally turned a profit are no coincidence. Nothing held niceness like the London 2012 opening ceremony. Possibly the most viewed British film of all time, this live event directed by then-recent Oscar winner Danny Boyle cost £27 million, about twice the budget of his triumphant slumdog millionaire. Performed from the Olympic Park Stadium in Stratford, it presents a potted history of Great Britain and Northern Ireland filtered through Boyle and the Olympic Committee's kaleidoscopic, box-ticking style. Kenneth Branagh commands as Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who announces the arrival of the Industrial Revolution by reciting The Tempest while a frightened feudal country folk look on. 
Hundreds of extras dance their way through the moving of sets to show the passage of time, while Boyle raids the BBC archive for the most impressive moments of British sporting achievement. In one moment of mournful pause, Boyle closes up on the face of suffragettes and First World War soldiers, complete with a blurry poppy in the foreground, before chimneys grow higher and higher. The march of progress is completed by a hundred white extras in Sergeant Pepper's outfits and a hundred black extras in Sunday Best, carrying suitcases to represent the Windrush generation. In a musical montage that includes J.K. Rowling reading from Peter Pan and a giant baby made out of hospitalised children's beds, British compassion is streamlined into its value for achievement, the NHS reduced to a logo that equals goodness in a chilling foreshadowing of the Clap for Carers initiative. The film climaxes with its most telling sequence. Where those chimneys once raised, now an ugly new build house sits. The multiracial, multi-generational family commune with technology through their phones, the TV and a Nintendo DS, to access a dance party that interpolates 30 years of youth culture into a few signifiers of colour and light. Papier-mâché punks leap on pogo sticks, and light-preceded dancers in Lindy Hop to Tidy Dancers pass out. Here, Boyle's frantic style is most clearly felt. Social media messages jump up on screen, the live footage is intercut with pre-recorded scenes and clips from classic British TV comedies. Finally, the house itself lifts from the ground to reveal Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the internet, inside, waving and happily hacking into the mainframe. British ideology is revealed as a globalising premise of innovation, linking to everyone wherever they are, sublimating their culture and motives as information and data that can be used to sell Britishness. Boyle here perfects the British filmmaking metier, perfect advertising that performs an individualist freedom while bound to the authority that is national myth. His niceness is everywhere. See him in Jonathan Glazer, another amusing example of the ad man come artist. His 1999 advert for Guinness is one of the most poetic evocations of alcohol ever captured in moving images. His three feature films, The Beer Ad Sexy Beast, The Perfume Ad Birth and Under the Skin, an ad for an app, are entertaining films all. They have no real daring or point of view, but still he has been crowned our nation's Kubrick. Boyle's most subversive act was rejecting a knighthood, saying it would be unfair to all the people who worked on the opening ceremony to take full authorship of the event. Branner accepted his honour that year, and has since churned out content as hired hand for the Disney mill. Now, even Boyle's style is too much for the Kino. The sequel to his Trainspotting, Empire Magazine's film of 1996, was met with a shrug by audiences and critics despite sending up notions of nostalgia and sequelitis in reasonably successful ways. He was fired from No Time to Die for wanting to kill James Bond. His most recent film, Yesterday, a Richard Curtis-penned rom-com without discernible features but with an Ed Sheeran cameo, felt like an endpoint for the Boyle aesthetic. Chewed and regurgitated, it could have been a glazer joint. At the same time, a different figure from British literature has become emblematic of this time, Paddington Bear. Paddington and its sequel, Paddington 2, are huge global hits. EBIT heir apparent David Ehrlich has used the film's cuddly aesthetic as a signal of his own niceness. Paddington's refrain, if we are kind and polite, the world will be all right, has the same energy as Clear Starmer's absentation on the Spike Ups bill. Paddington director Paul King, like Boyle before him, started out as an arbiter of naughty's cool by directing The Mighty Boosh, a surreal three-season sitcom that captured the energy of Camden in those days when he could famously spot Amy Winehouse having a pint. His reward for making Boosh a phenomenon was Bunny and the Bull, a practically unwatchable blank check movie. The Holy Mountain for BTEC students, or Brits in general, Jodorowsky's film has rarely been available on UK home video. Disgraceful, hellish garbage it may be, but they don't make him like Bunny and the Bull anymore. They don't make him films at all. Instead, we make nice. 
The Chancellor, Dishi Rishi Sunak, has been angled to seem cute. BBC drawing him as Superman, the Times literally photoshopping a halo into a picture above his head, and kind, E-Town to help out. His complicity in the recession of 08, a mere sequence of the happy bear failing to stop on exploding bathroom pipes in the Paddington story for the richest man in Parliament. King's penance for Bunny and the Ball was to direct the BBC series Come Fly With Me, which readers may remember as the 2011 black, brown, yellow face equal opportunity offender mockumentary featuring characters like Taj, a Pakistani man played by Matt Lucas with the indelible catchphrase, if you don't like Avatar, you gay. When the Black Lives Matter protests happened in tw- June 2020, the right responded to the felling and plunging of Bristol's Colston Monument to slavery by turning the conversation into an identity politics debate about whether it was right to censor old sitcoms. They had treasured memories of Come Fly With Me. And so they should. Just 12 months later, BBC viewers would tune in to watch Mr Bean play Evangelis on the keys at the opening ceremony and ascend like Ray Winston and Amanda Redman in Sexy Beast. King won't ever be seen as an auteur like Boyle or Glazer. He can't sell himself, only others. Instead, the new filmmaker foisted upon us by the British cinema class is Rose Glass. She appeared on the cover of Sight and Sound's Halloween edition with a profile appropriately written by Kim Newman. This was notable because it's so rare for a British filmmaker to grace the cover, unless they have the name recognition of a Danny Boyle or a Steve McQueen. So why is Glass being sold to us? Her film St Maud is a tepid, timid religious provocation disguised as a horror film, for all horror films must now come cloaked as awards-worthy for mass appeal. There are numerous reasons why she and not Carol Morley or Debbie Tucker Green would have made the cover instead. For one, their films have an identity. Who is Glass other than a plant to soak up Biffa nominations and eventually make an American Southern Gothic film for streaming series? Boyle covered the whole of enlightened British history with his Olympic Games film, and even he's fallen. The British identity no longer exists at all. A smiling, waving Mr Man is the best we can hope for. If Mr Sunak is the happy bear for our times, then I'll sit back and let the spirit of 2012 wash through me. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash year zero cinema.